everyone with an interest in NASH or more broadly fatty liver disease, surf's up. Season 3, Episode 3, our summary of the closing day of NASHTAG 2022, starts now. Today on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. If you're wondering why I'm talking where the opening quote should be, here's what happened. 110 full episodes into this podcast, we just recorded from a remote on-site location for the first time. It was an experience, and we want to get this podcast out to you as soon as is reasonable. So after my friend Grace does her intro, we'll get started immediately. Over 140 NAFLD and NASH stakeholders came to Park City, Utah, for the 6th annual NASHTAG meeting. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader, Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and today's guest, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Professor Jarn Schottenberg, as they discuss some of the highlights from NASHTAG Day 2, today on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. of you who were with us late yesterday afternoon or evening, depending upon, or early morning, Louise, depending upon where in the world you were, Stephen and company managed to engineer a rather rousing final act for Nashtag 2022, which we will talk about in a minute. By the time it ended at 8.15 Mountain Time last night, a half hour off schedule, which actually isn't bad for Nashtag, given that two times I spoke here, both those sessions ended a half an hour off and they were the first day, um, which is part of the charm of the Roger Ghost and Nashtag story is how do you keep an audience that doesn't want to be there? Right. As compared to last night where everybody did want to be there. But by the time that ended, I think most of us were kind of, as they used to say in American breakfast cereals, burned to a quackly quisp. People were tired. People were emotional. People were through it. This morning, we just had the Beatles without Donna. Um, Jorn is here in his role as the Beatle. Louise is here. And Stephen and I are here. After this, Stephen will go out on the slopes and I'll go fly back to the east. And you guys will have a guess your afternoon. Good afternoon, Jorn. How are you today? Yeah, well, good morning, Roger. Good morning, Stephen. Good to hear and see you. It's been a tremendous second day. As you know, I've been following it online. Not quite as endurant as Louise has been, but NASHTAG is really, we, we call it the kickoff of a great year, important things to come. And I think it uh, held up to that expectations. It was a fabulous meeting. From what I could follow over the internet, you could feel the emotion of the discussions. The topics, of course, were right on target. So I had a great weekend here. And I'll be very interested to hear how things went up, you know, as a comment to the organizers, uh, looking ahead, maybe a recorded session that you could then follow if you've missed it, could be something to think about in the future. But, you know, I'm sure Nashtag success will be carried into the next year and we'll see how it's done. Thanks, Jorn. And that's great. And I had made the same note to suggest to Stephen, who weren't on tape, that he wants to put pressure on the organizers to get rough cuts of videos out to people who want them earlier as compared to whatever they're going to do with them, polish them and put them in a vault somewhere or release them in a couple of weeks. So Stephen and I have decided that we're going to create our first named award in the history of surfing the Nash tsunami. It will be called the Louise Campbell Award, and it will go to the person who is willing to pull all-nighters simply to watch meetings close. <laughs> We're living in a different time zone. So, Louise, are you awake yet today? I am very much awake, and um, I'm not too sure having the discussion that um, at the firesides before you directly go to sleep because it stimulates your brain, because I think it was certainly a very heartfelt session. It was very honest. It was nice to have a dialogue that was general and involved a lot of participants, I suppose, from different sides of the field. So that's what was exciting, I think, obviously, um, as we go on and discuss what the FDA said. 
all I can say is Nashtag this year packed a really big punch in the heavyweight division. We're going to see 2022 being the year of the liver. I said that was my aim last year. It's one of my outcomes this year, but I think we've started off very, very well. And I was on coffee, so I can attest to the caffeine boost to keep me awake. I'm not too sure how you lot will be feeling today, but hey, I'm as fresh as a daisy. Well, Stephen's going to go skiing, so he'll be fine. And I will get on a plane and probably fall asleep for the next five hours, but that's all right. And then then we have our own king of the heavyweight division. Uh, Stephen, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Roger. And good morning, Jorn and Louise. It's great to be on the back end of this thing and reflect on all the great discussion that we had over the past 48 hours. And I want to say to both of you who have been so important to this podcast, that come hook or crook, I would love for you to be here in person next year and participate in the meeting and get your perspective because both of you are so key to the field and where we're headed and the change that we're going to have. And I think that is the reflection that I'm having this morning on the meeting. And that is, boy, did we kick off 2022 with a bang, a a huge bang. And I think it's just the pace setter for what's to come. If we think about where we're going in 2022, we will have a decision from the FDA on a beta-colic acid. That almost certainly will come this year. We will have key readouts from large phase two trials. We'll have key readouts from two large phase three trials. This is a pivotal shift and maybe hearken back to Robert Frost and two roads diverged into the wood. And which one did we take? Well, we're taking the one less traveled by and we are going to, we're going to, this is a pivotal year and it's going to require a lot of hard work, but more than any other year I've been around in the field of Nash, I sense, and and I said this last night, I sense a disturbance in the force. If you're a Star Wars fan, there is clearly a disturbance in the force. And I think it's a positive disturbance. That's, I guess, my initial thoughts, but lots to talk about here today. And again, thank you guys for persevering with us yesterday and for being with us today on the podcast. Well said. So I'm not even going to add anything to that because I think you pretty, folks pretty well covered the landscape. Yeah, this was a powerful meeting. This is the third Nash tag I've been to. Wasn't there last year because I was only two weeks after my first vaccine. But I said from the first time I came here when I knew nothing about liver disease that this was a unique meeting. In fact, I've got to say, frankly, this meeting has sucked me into this disease as much as anything else did. Mm-hmm. Stephen's compelling charisma and all the other stuff that we deal with. This meeting is just an amazing event. And even by those standards, this meeting was an amazing event. Stephen's closing comment at the end of the marathon was that there will certainly be a seventh Nash check. If you could figure out how to do this twice a year, dude, that would be pretty amazing. No, <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. And I, I, I was surprised that time flies. I mean, we've had six of these already. Wow. We had our after action review last night with Michael and Vlad and Rohit, myself, and, you know, just thinking about year seven and what we're going to talk about. There is so much data coming out in 2022 that, you know, it's, it's way too early to even think about putting a program together because you just don't know how to frame next year's agenda because of all the data that is coming out and some of the things that we're hopeful to do post NASHTAG 2022 that I think will be revolutionary to what happens in the rest of the year. This is a catalytic moment for the field. The other thing hopefully we'll chat about a little bit is 
And, and I loved how the FDA wrapped this in at the end. This idea of nail NIT, that, that's the whole other part of this thing that's so exciting is we were, for the first time, able, I think, to break down stovepipes across the landscape of pharma in this field to collaborate, to bring data together, to mine that data, you know, in a public-private consortium way where Dr. Turner was clear that that's what he wants. Mm -hmm. And he's even willing to put an FDA liaison on the team, if mm -hmm. I heard him correctly. And just that's all this stuff we need to capitalize on. And I feel like I have my work cut out for me over the next three to six months. But, you know, again, probably more than any other meeting I've been to, this meeting, this meeting, there was a passion. There was a sense of collaboration and teamwork and let's go build this thing. It's almost like, what was that TV show we had uh, for years here where they would build a house in one week and they brought everybody together and all the teams worked 24 hours a day to put up this house in literally one week. And I feel like that's where we are. We've got all these teams, all this passion, everybody's wanting to contribute. And we just need to, quote unquote, build the house and get where we need to go for the future. You know, and from an outsider's perspective, Stephen, uh, NASDAQ is really unique in its ability to bring together those stakeholders in the field. You know, if you go to uh, the large meetings, ASL Day, ESL, it's all about liver, but still there are so many parallel sessions, sections, uh, you might end up seeing each other at net board, but it's not the discussion to the extent that's been able to carry out here at NASHTAC and really then implement things, you know, not leaving the meeting and saying, you know, we're going to have a follow-up call and see uh, maybe we're going to have a project. But no, this is really boots to the ground. The troops are marching and way forward we go to move beyond the biopsy and really see where the registrational trials are taking us also in terms of biomarkers. Yeah, that's a great point, Jorn. To me, and just following on that comment as I reflect on the words that you said, it seems like AASLD and EASL is a meeting that's more about the individual. They want to share important data that they've built a career around. What's the latest and greatest coming out of a lab? Or what's the latest and greatest coming out of a pharma company and reporting that data? Whereas here, I get the sense it's more collaborative. It's more about the we. It's more about taking what has been generated in these individual labs, in these individual companies, and now pooling that together for the greater good and blending that together and coming up with something that will set the foundation for the next growth phase of the organization, whatever that happens to be and whatever direction that happens to go. It's almost like this is the pace setter event that allows us to then take the next step. And I think here, we took a giant leap. Yes, I, I think that's right. The way it's always struck me is we think that water boils at a certain temperature, whether you call it 100 or 212, I don't really care. But that's not quite right. If you put more pressure in the pot where the water is boiling, you actually change the temperature at which the water starts to bubble, at which things superheat and pressure comes on. So if you think about ASLD or easel, You've got 10,000 people or however many thousand people you've got. You've got diffuse interests and you've got a meeting that's really organized to give everybody their moment. This is a couple hundred people, I don't know, 300 total between the video and the hybrid and the, and the in the room. We'll come back to that in a minute. Much smaller, single purpose. So you're really in a hyper-pressurized space. And everybody is there not to focus, as you say, on the individual, but to focus on the goal, right? This is really an eyes on the prize meeting. And what happens as a result is this is just a really intense thing. One of the comments that I heard from people who were here about to ask you guys this question was, boy, this is so different here than it is hybrid. 
can't imagine how anybody could feel this one if they weren't here. So, and although you folks have both commented that you did. So one of the places I'd like to start is I'd like to just ask you the sense in which you felt connected, although you weren't in Utah, and the sense in which you maybe weren't sure that you were completely connected because you weren't in Utah. Brave one, go first. Let me start. Clearly, the open mic sessions, the discussion in the room, the audio sometimes dropped when they changed from one mic to the other, but those are minor technical things. You could still follow it. You could feel that there is agreement or disagreement on a certain topic and see which way the discussion moves and build your own thoughts around it. So clearly, that interactive moment has been great. The moments where I felt a little bit alone on my side of the computer screen here was the taped uh, pre-recorded talks for good reasons they're being pre-recorded but even if a if a live speaker was on there and then you felt more close to the meeting itself so i think there's a clear difference whether you you're watching a pre-recorded me um, or not yeah i guess that's it all right louise go ahead yeah i think for me it was the ability just to see what was going on in the room like i could see you roger i could see people in the room i could do all of that not dissimilar to being there but also the feel for the session hats off to the organization committee so Steve and Vlad and Michael and Rohit putting together the agenda because I think the agenda flowed quite nicely and specifically the agenda leading to the fireside chats yesterday because it meant that what the FDA were listening to was up-to-date information and knowledge that was really quite passionately given by Alina Allen and all of the and Marzen and all of the sessions pre-leading up to that about why we need biopsies poor how we don't get the best information and I think that to me it was very personal it you could feel it and I think that led really really nicely into those fireside chats because it was very fresh and it was very difficult to argue against such overwhelming information and evidence-based so the agenda running through was really nicely put up but also the agenda for me that made it feel that I could be there and it felt more personal but there were snippets of gut dysbiosis I'm not a basic scientist but it's being able to take it and being able to put it into how do we develop that in the future. When you talk about the house being built and the teams, we can build all of these houses scientifically but if we don't have a nursing team we don't have dietetics, we don't have the people there to support this program as we develop out then we're going to be, I suppose in a limbo. But I think what this meeting gave to me was the advanced knowledge of how you're putting all of that together, how the scientists are working with companies, how we're looking at the DFDA, how we're putting it in a holistic way that we can develop those structures to be able to put in specialist nurses, specialist teams in primary care and secondary care and specialist care. That I did feel during the meeting. That's not what the meeting's about generally. It's usually about the science, but it's what I can take away from that as a an advanced practitioner, as a nurse specialist, as a fibre scan operative. How I develop that so that excited me. I did feel that across the room. Obviously, Donna spoke impassionedly at the end to the FDA and somebody else supported that earlier on in that meeting. There was a lot of power in the room and I felt that. But it, I also know some of you guys, not personally, I've never met you. <laughs> but we see each other several times a week. <laughs> So for me, it was exciting. And that's why 2022 has started with a bang. And I think you're right. You guys will rewrite the books. So, Louise, I want to comment on the I don't know you. Because for me personally, one of the most striking moments in this two days has nothing to do with the meeting itself. It has to do with Quentin and me sitting in this room yesterday morning on podcast and realizing that we'd never been in the same space before yesterday. Because we spent enough time talking to each other that it was a completely familiar experience. That, that frankly, I think is about the podcast. It's not, that's not about Nash Tape. That's about the amount of time we've all spent together in the last year in different, in different 
venues. So I think you'll be surprised by exactly how familiar we all are when we actually get into the same space. Except no one knows how tall anybody is. So we'll have to figure that one out. But other than that, I'm really short, by the way. Not really. really looking forward to that experience. We all are. We've got we've got to talk about what we do for a surfing, not reunion, but surfing union, when there's actually a meeting that we all get to in person. It's probably going to be easy. Yeah, I know. I know, I know, I know. Which means which means you're going to have to be the organizing committee. Um, <laughs> so, 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 Louise, I want, to, I want to take one thing you just said, and I want to turn that back to each of us, okay, but for you first, which is you said, as you listened, as a practitioner who does what you do, you heard comments that would make you think about how to do things differently. Can you give an example of something you heard in the last two days where you said, gee, I'm going to take that forward? Maybe not. I mean, there's a lot to process, and you have no setup for that question. I just asked it. I suppose if I look at the data that came out on non-invasive technologies, there's a lot more, and it was summed up yesterday evening really nicely about looking at all of the non-invasive technologies for progress. A 20% reduction in fibre scan is equivalent, or a 20% increase is equivalent with a change in prognosis somebody's health. I think it was 19% for MRE. Personally, those are the things I see in practice all of the times. It is nice to now see the evidence coming up. And when I took a leap of faith, which was a comment last night about taking that leap of faith, I took a leap of faith to leave the NHS after 35 years of clinical practice in liver disease to put into the forum the ability to get Fibroscan easier, to make it accessible to everybody from primary care to the individual to secondary care at a hugely reduced cost effectively in the end. That was a leap of faith. But I really believe that changing liver health is a key outcome. Most people should never become liver patients. With the evidence coming out yesterday in liver patients, that strengthens my resolve to change one person, to really be passionate about changing that. Stephen, I've been talking to these guys and normally the way this episode sets up, everybody's on screen because of how we had to do this. I'm looking at you. They're not seeing you. What's the one thing you hope people will do differently next week or next month as a result? of having been part of this. My hope is that the 300 people that participated in this meeting go and share the information and the passion and the way that we galvanized together with others. You know, we it's it's me going back to Texas and me having Zoom conference calls with everybody that I have Zoom conference calls with and sharing what came out of this meeting. And so we begin to take that passion that was generated here and we try to infuse that into all of the people that we have connections with and influence with. That's one huge part that everybody can play. For myself and the my course co-directors, we have a much more granular job ahead and that is taking the information that we learned, the information that was synthesized on biopsy data, NIT data, FDA's openness and willingness to consider change and drive that change forward. That's what we want to do coming out of this meeting. If that means writing a white paper, if that means rewriting the guidance document and submitting it to the FDA, that's what we're going to do. We, we will do something. The door, I think, is opened a bit, whether that's changing the criteria histopathologically for what NASH resolution is, changing the guidance on cirrhosis, and at a minimum, allowing for a one-stage improvement in fibrosis in a cirrhotic population to completely moving away from biopsy as an endpoint. I think we have enough data 
to do that. I think there's enough precedence with other drug approval, with other drugs that have been approved in other disease states that haven't had to be beholden to such a high standard with such a highly variable endpoint. That's the reality of the situation. We spelled out in crayon the problem with the current endpoint. We laid out an opportunity to get beyond that. We just need to put that pen to paper and generate the document that will help us get to that point. Yeah, visualization of data. That one slide that I kept seeing that said nobody's ever gotten 20% in a study to get to what we say people have to get to. Immensely powerful slide. Immensely powerful in the context of what everybody's been saying about OCA all along. Well, they only got to this number, and by the way, there are these safety issues. Well, that's a number nobody ever got to, right? Yeah. That and the placebo response rate that's so highly variable. Yep. That was an amazing set of data. When you looked at semaglutide and you looked at lanafibrinor and you looked at obetacolic acid and you looked at elafibrinor and you saw the placebo response rate being all over the map, but yet the drug response rate being similar. So compare lanafibrinor to semaglutide on fibrosis response, an identical response. Placebo was widely different. Semaglutide couldn't hit that endpoint. Lanafibrinor did. Juxtapose that with the same obetacolic acid and elafibrinor, same fibrotic response, yep. different placebo response. One was killed, one moved forward. And then you hearken back to the MSDC 0602K day where we had the exact same thing. We didn't hit the endpoint with that because of lots of different reasons. That then generated the Davison paper showing the flaws in the way that we interpret these biopsies where there's such a widely variable response rate, not only with drug, but with placebo, that brings us back to the aldefermin data where the fibrosis response by MCP mod did not hit a dose response relationship. And it caused that company to completely not move that drug forward. And we all know and think and believe that that has biological activity. Unfortunately, as Michael Jordan said it best, we learned more from our failures. It's just here at this meeting, the light bulb came on about how we take those failures and how we learn from those failures and how we collectively synthesize the path forward from those failures. And not only do we do that, but we do it with a whole groundswell of support across industry, academia, patient advocacy groups, podcast members, and potentially the FDA. So by the way, I heard a statistic last week that I've been saving for you. It's not a direct response to your comment, but it's just a part of it. I, uh, business person, was talking about who missed the most shots in NBA history. Do you know the answer to that question? No. It's not Michael, it's Kobe. Wow. Same point. Yeah. Same point, right? Right. The guy who hits the most game-winning shots has to miss the sun on the way there. That's right. It's interesting because we've seen that data and we've discussed it on the podcast. It's been presented and it takes the galvanization fire chat moment to really bring this together and align the stakeholders. So I think that's what NASHTAG is about. Yeah, you're, it's, inter it's interesting. The thing I think I felt being here that I don't think I would have felt if I wasn't here was some of the ways that the entire meeting really pointed to that moment. I mean, you guys, you, Corey, your orchestration choreography, take your pick, was, was really good. But the points that kept getting made over and over again in different contexts were points that teed up how flawed this system is. Somebody during the fireside chats, it might have been Joe Turner, made the comment about if you really had a strong signal, even if you or made the suggestion, even if you had a really strong signal, it should work its way through all the noise around the biopsy process. But 
when you put the Davison paper out two years ago, there were whole arguments about that for the next hour, including people in the industry arguing passionately that, hey, I've got a good drug, you know, and if I've only got one reader, I'll work my way through it. If there's error, I'll work my way through it. My drug's that good. I hadn't heard anybody saying that yesterday except for that one comment in that one meeting. In the how far have we come in two years? That's huge. I agree. That's huge. Let's step away. Let's step back earlier in the day if it's possible. And uh, one thing you heard before we got to the fireside chats or one paper or one presentation from which you took away something that's going to have real impact going forward or that you thought was particularly compelling. Your Honor, let me ask you first, just one of the presentations from earlier in the day that made you sit up or made you think about something differently. Sure. Let me just start chronologically a little bit. I thought the day was off well with Maru Ranilla giving an update of what's called the NASH Task Force. Now, the name of the disease has been a source of discussion that was spiked in the paper brought forward, considering that it should really be named to MAFLD. And then, you know, a whole number of sessions on this podcast and discussions all over emented. And there was fear that uh, this could distract from the goals of the of the field, that people could be confused whether there are two diseases or three diseases, how does that relate to each other? And I felt with her presentation, bringing forward the NASH task force and laying out a rigorous path in moving forward and finding consent through Delphi rounds and members of societies, practitioners, is really going to clear that fog and define the best ways. And we'll probably end up with a number of subcategories, not taking away from the regulatory endpoints or the disease and the patients overall. Question on that? thought. Okay, Louise, one moment that really grabbed you. I suppose it was a moment I wasn't expecting, actually. It was the Michael Caron section on gut dysbiosis and inflammation and the reminder that arguably that if we don't look at the gut, the gut is the process of which that we develop fatty liver disease. It's that first step. And he was looking at the fructose, if I remember correctly, going through that and how to look at correcting and looking at targeting that area. And to some extent, it took me into the thinking of if we can look at those areas Areas, then we can protect a lot of people in advance. So therefore, the protection of developing the disease is a possibility when he, you look through his processes, whether that's a correct summary. I'd, uh, it's just what I was taking away from that. So it was just one of those things I started to listen to and then it really grabbed my attention. But obviously, I look at nutrition a little bit more and what I talk to patients about. If you look at, I think it's vitamin A and C, you can take iron. If you look at um, tea, and black tea particularly, you can reduce your iron intake there's lots of things we can do within the gut to develop and 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 maybe it hasn't been utilized as much as he would be suggesting that could be a process so that was one that surprised me was there one Stephen, earlier in the day that you think will either have particular impact on you as you watch this program be put together and then heard it or that you just believe will have impact on how people think about disease or treating it well there were so many really good sessions around pathophysiology, basic science. It's hard to pinpoint one. I thought the discussions from Sam Klein, from Cohen, were terrific. The whole weight loss perspective that that Sam brought to the table, the pathophysiological discussions around fat and the role of ELDL plays, I thought were were very intriguing. But just more at a clinical level to me, and and I I do these talks all the time, but I thought Mike Charlton did a much better job than I could ever possibly do on combination therapy. I thought he did a tremendous job of really peeling away the onion and making it really easy to think about what's important in combination therapy when we begin to look at it. And reflective is that we have not done a good job of looking at combination therapies to date. And the way we've gotten to the combos we have have been more about, you know, 
trying to keep drugs alive and find a role for them somewhere uh, and pharma companies willing to combine those drugs rather than using science to drive the combinations. Let me just finish with this thought on Michael. He is just a genius. I, uh, to hear Michael speak and put things in perspective and use his colloquial charm and comments that, that just keep people engaged. He is my hero when it comes to speaking. He's, he's pretty fantastic. And you describe him as a deep thinker. Use that phrase frequently when talking about Michael. One of the things that grabbed me about him this weekend in particular is his ability to take some things that really matter, never particularly come out and say them, but weave them into the fabric. Uh, a theme that was in his year in review and also in the combination talk yesterday, although he never said it, was about all the ways the bad commercial decisions that people are making because they don't have enough money or don't have enough resourcing or twist what we're doing, whether it's about trial size and the inherent implications of the problem that a small company is doing all the development, followed by yesterday, the first day, the way Vincent Wong did such a spectacular job of putting that completely in the substrate of the Alta Furman presentation without ever actually saying it. And then when Michael went back to combination and said, we're doing this wrong because basically we're thinking about assets instead of thinking about disease. And he, without using that sentence, he made that point really clear, as you just said. Yeah. He speaks He's not, he's not speaking in three-dimensional chess. He's speaking in like seven-dimensional chess. Yeah, and let me just add on to that. I think that's what makes Nashtag so unique is from a course director perspective, each one of us bring something unique to the meeting that makes the DNA of the meeting what it is. And just switching gears and talking about Vlad and his whole fireside chat around cirrhosis and his ability to look at the data, synthesize the data, and make it very clear at the end of his presentation and be bold about it in front of the FDA to say, these are our two options. Pick one. Yep. <laughs> and and it's hard to say, no, it, you just want to pick one and you want to run with it. And you think there's no reason to not pick one, that this is clear. This is the way ahead. And then Rohit's ability to take the basic science knowledge that he has, the microbiome knowledge that he has, the ability to know everything there is to know about the imaging data, because in a large part, he's generated that data, and to engage in a robust discussion about PDFF. I mean, there are, it became clear, I mean, there are people that don't like PDFF. Uh, there are people <laughs> that like PDFF. And I think what we came out of that meeting with was, yeah, there's a role for PDFF. It's not agnostic to mechanism. It does depend on what mechanism you're using, but that's Rohit. That's his ability to really look at that data from a scientific perspective. That's one of the positive things of this meeting is the ability to bring all of that together and put it in a blender and come out with the smoothie, if you will, that single cell transcriptomic talk that, that I thought was the perfect slide for that discussion was the, the, the whole liver looking at that as smoothies versus single cell, which is the different components of the mm -hmm. smoothies. And I, I thought those that visual was, was perfect for that. So getting back to combination therapy, to me, it, it is clear we're going to have to go into combinations. What are those best combinations look like? And how do we enroll people into those combinations trials, you know, ideally we would love to have personalized medicine at the single 
individual level, looking at specific mechanisms that drive the disease process in that individual, we're just not there yet. And that maybe is part of the challenge with why we don't have super efficacious drugs yet. But that's that gets me back to the right plane analogy. Mm -hmm. This is the very beginning. Let's get the first drug approved. And to get the first drug approved, we need the FDA to align with us on that. And I feel like that's what we're coming out of this meeting with, is that sense that we know the way forward. We know how to look at enrolling the right patients. We are learning what the right combinations are. We are learning how to get these drugs across the finish line. In 2022, quite frankly, we're likely to do that. Listening to you, one of the things that strikes me that I heard in this meeting was people that want to go back to three years ago when the finish line was, what do we have to do to get a drug to knock down fibrosis one level enough patients for it to matter? Uh, this has been, to me, a process of redefining the finish line. Right. If you think about the medical, that's not the finish line we're looking at anymore. And rightfully so, we're starting to talk about innovations in NAFOGI care. You know, how do we roll out those therapies we're expecting soon. Where are those patients? How do we engage them or the stakeholders that are seeing those patients? Is, uh, what's the NIT to follow them? It's really the next level. You know, you always mentioned that at the beginning of everybody asked, how, how do I decrease the fibrosis stage by one histological level? But now we're really rolling out models of care. We're building consensus around who should be treated, who should take care of these patients. That's based on the progress that also those combination therapies have been made. And I, I really enjoyed from the distance, and that was one of the interactive moments, I thought, was around the presentation of uh, Michael. If you had to pick one slide from the entire meeting that is crystallized in your brain that you would take forward, what would that be? You may not have one. I have one. I'll share mine with you first. Okay. Mine was the one balloon cell that nine pathologists agreed on out of the 1183, I believe. No, it was 11. Quentin corrected me on this yeah. yesterday. 80,000 cells, 1,138, 1, at least one of the nine pathologists saw a balloon cell in. One cell, they all saw it in. That. That was so powerful. And I think I think that, quite frankly, was like the tipping point, was the straw that broke the camel's back on this whole thing. And quite and good news is that paper was just accepted in JHEP. So, so now that paper could be put into the armamentarium to build the story to the FDA that the way we've looked at this to date, while perfectly well-intended when originally developed, is inadequate. To me, that was the Davison paper of 2022. You, you gave the paper, but I was in the room. And five minutes after you got done with the Davison paper, it was like there were debates, but everybody was thinking about differently. Was there an objective standard by which you could look at biopsy, mm -hmm. right? This was the flip side of that, which is, okay, this is how we're looking at, at NAS. How objective can that be as a standard when ballooning is right in the middle of it and no one can figure out what the hell balloon cell is? Yeah, and maybe the second best slide to me yeah. was Naeem's slide on the chimera. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that I saw that on Twitter and I felt that monster was uh, impressive or uh, stayed with me. Yeah. I mean, there are things that you walk around in the middle of the day, seeing clinic that just pop into your head from Nashtag and that Chimera is one, that balloon cell was one, the smoothie is another one. Yeah. I don't know. Louise, what do you think? I suppose the one that Vlad, well, Vlad had, but a lot of them had, it was the effect of bariatric surgery on fibrosis where you get the bar charts and basically cirrhotics 
really didn't change over the five years, but we got more F0, F1, F2. So finding it earlier makes those changes. But I think for Vlad in his session, nailed it. To challenge the FDA to say, if you want to bring fibrosis down, we can't do that, but we can show you outcomes. We can improve every outcome that you want, but we're not going to meet that criteria of removing that fibrosis. And therefore, why set that bar? That challenge was great. I think that bar chart for me, along with the, obviously, the ballooning cell, if you can't find a ballooning cell and it's part of your criteria, we're in trouble. But I think that bar chart, you're not going to change cirrhosis for the majority, but you are going to change the majority in the other fibrosis categories over those years. So that was a powerful slide for me. And it was used by quite a few people. And I think it was the silly gastroenterology 2020 slide. You know, just thinking about it more, the other one I really liked was Sam Klein's last slide with the elephant. Mm -hmm. He was joking, but the reality was we have come so far with weight loss drugs. We're we're on the precipice of some really good data coming out as we pivot away from just a GLP-1, adding a GIP, adding a glucagon agonist, and seeing the altimune presentation on what can happen in fatty liver patients. And so his comment was, it's a good time to be obese and have fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. Take that for what it is. The point is, we actually are on the precipice of having some great potential drugs that can really leave a big fat dent on this planet in the name of fatty liver and obesity. Yeah. So one moment I had. So first of all, completely tangential comment. We also congratulate Naeem on getting his thousandth Twitter follower yesterday, although I don't know who he has to buy dinner for. That's true. (laughs) He has got the thousand. I've just checked. Yeah, he did did get to a thousand. We were talking about this at dinner last night. In fact, uh, Mazen sent him a congratulatory right. text at dinner last night. Scott Harris showed up in 2020 to show earlier altimune data and put up data that basically said elafipronor is a placebo. And if you remember the medical guy from France, from GenFit, kind of really went off on him. And I said to him afterwards, that was really a gutsy thing to do. I hope it plays out for you. Uh, well, we're looking at it, right? It's two years later. Yeah, elafipronor is like way in the rearview mirror. And they're showing this data. And I said, good. And then, then Sam, Sam's talk, I think, hammered all that, right? It's, it's not just that Pemby's a good drug. PEMV is a good drug. PEMV looks like a good drug in development, but it's the logic of the mechanisms and how they go together. Yeah, and, and, and there was other data, you know, catutatide and um, mm-hmm. a couple of the others that, that I think really are opening the eyes to, to how we can manage these people. And, and we've known for years from the gosh data that predated the Villar-Gomar, the Villar-Gomez paper from Cuba that he again highlighted mm-hmm. looking at weight loss. You know, we had a paper with Orlistat before that showing that 9% weight loss was where we began to see everything moving in the right direction. And so we've known for, for years that 10% weight loss can have a major impact. And these drugs are consistently appearing to hit that. I loved, you know, Naga Chalasani is, is a master in his own right. You know, the chair of GI at Indiana. And to see him, to, you go to a meeting, you never have to have to think of a contrarian viewpoint because Naga will bring that to mm-hmm. the picture. And I loved his comment of, should we, could we, is it possible to just cycle these drugs? They're so powerful. Maybe we just give them around every quarter. Is that out-of-the-box thinking? Yes, it is. Is it different thinking? Yes. That's not the way we typically, we don't think of obesity management like chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. You know, let's give you a dose and six weeks later, another round. And But these drugs are so powerful in hitting this 10% weight loss goal as early as 12 weeks. And maybe there is a role for something like that that we, we historically haven't thought about. One of the things I'm taking at this meeting, and I came up yesterday in our, in our morning session, not the one with Scott and Donna, which you should listen to at some point because it was completely different than what you guys did in the morning. 
But the idea that combination therapy, if we think about it right for this disease, should have a longitudinal dimension to it. That hit me, as I said yesterday morning, listening to the after chatter about what did it mean for fruxifermin that pegbelfermin went back to placebo in 48 weeks. The answer being, well, maybe you don't need that class of drugs for 48 weeks. So that's the idea. There's a longitudinal. But then Naga took that to a whole different level, right? Because now he's saying, let's plan longitudinally and let's plan for the idea that everything is a utility player, everything has a piece. That, that's, that's not how people typically think in medicine. Right. I mean, you see some of that in oncology, but even there, it's mostly about lines of therapy. It's not about cycling longitudinally. It's not about saying, okay, if this works, it's going to work for six months and then I got to go on and do something else. It speaks to the complexity of the liver, I think. Yeah, or metabolism more in general, because the counter argument was that there is a cycling that changes the metabolic rate. And the biggest loser that have been shown in the TV show, I think uh, that was uh, Michael Charton with his uh, combination talk in the beginning, they all regained the weight. So there's a certain danger if that's identical with drugs and you take them off and then you change the metabolic. So I think we need data to study that. And Naga made the good point that you could interrupt or maybe treat temporarily. Ruit disagreed strongly, but you know, from that discussion and interaction, you get ideas and you get... That's exactly right. I want to yeah. do a trial with intermittent fasting and put people, tell them to time restrict their eating behaviors and then go back to normal and study what happens. You, you know, just bouncing around as we talk about and reflect back on the, the meeting, one of the agenda items that we struggled with and, and we wanted to hear from was lessons learned from drug development. And we weren't sure how it was going to come across, but I thought David Shapiro did an amazing job in his lecture of taking us through the imperfect gold standard mm -hmm. and where we hit many challenges along the road and maybe some truisms and thou shalt nots and maybe considerations for the future in drug development. I thought I thought he did an amazing job. Yes, and I think your decision to put that right in front of the chats where you probably had uh, Joe Turner and Steve Berman hearing that because it was right before they came up and in fact the way the timing worked out, right? When they were supposed to be on, if they tuned in five minutes before they were supposed to be on, what they got was David hammering the history of how you evaluate drugs. That that, that thing about wasn't it between Bitcoins and gold? Yeah. Uh, you about slides that stuck with me? That one stuck with me. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, and I've been right. talking about the pyrite standard forever, but I thought what he did was actually better. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that was great. And in that moment, if you wanted a presentation, so it wasn't, by the way, it wasn't when you talked about it a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't what I expected it would be. I thought it would be about, well, here are the places that we should have done this instead of that. And he said, well, no, we might have done everything right. And it could just be this whole structure so screwed up that we could have done everything right and y'all could have missed it. Right. And that message at that moment was the perfect send off for the fireside chats. I think it was too. I, in fact, we didn't even have it in that section. We moved it down to that section. Um, was that because you knew what he was going to say? Or no. Was that because, because we had, nobody had any idea what he was going to say. Okay. Because it could have been a dud, or in it, but it wasn't. It turned out to be the perfect segue into my presentation on the non-serotic data and then Vlad's on the serotic data. So I thought that was terrific. You know, I, I do think it was important also for there to be a discussion about how do we manage biopsies today until we get to beyond the biopsy. The big thrust is let's get beyond the biopsy. I get that. But that's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen the 1st of February. So we have multiple trials. I think I heard I think I heard Joe Turner talking about a five to 10 year window on that. Yeah. So yeah. in the intervening period, we still are 
enrolling these trials. We still have precipitously high screen fail rates, and that fatigue is really starting to take its impact. You know, I wanted to share the data that, that we've generated today on mitigating the screen fail rate by looking at more slides, more tissue. And the idea is a simple one, but I think the people that took the flyer and, and instituted that change are glad they did. They're seeing significant drops in screen fail rate. So I thought that was important data to get out. Maybe it got a little lost in the, in the weeds of the bigger discussion, but I do think that's something that will help not only our screen fail rate, but it will mitigate some of the variability in placebo response rate. So I made a note I wanted to share with you, which I'll do now because here we are, right? If you drop your screen fail rate from 80% to 50%, what have you done to your acceptance rate? It's gone up. By how much? Two and a half times. Yeah. I mean, 80, 80 to 50 doesn't sound like nearly as big a thing as a two and a half fold increase in acceptance rate. That's right. So I think you just flip the script on that. Yeah. Let's, you know, we're so, it's a funny thing. We're so accustomed to failing in this space that we talk about how to fail less. No, 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 no. It's about what's the impact on the success rate. That's right. And if you make it 20 to 50, you've completely changed the way people are going to look at that data. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, I looked yeah. at that last night and I made that note and I said, I have to tell Stephen. That's so true. here we are. That's but, a great way of thinking about it. But. Yeah. I don't think it missed its spot. I think it was perfectly placed. It was something that I reflected on while I was listening to the FDA. Now, what I heard them say was, actually, we will still accept histopathology, but we'll accept everything you want to throw at histopathology to help the histopathologist, which was the AI-improved reading. So, actually, if it's histopathology sample and AI is reading it, but the histopathologist is taking the AI-induced, now better sample, whether or not it was one sample, two samples, your three samples or more, but if AI AI was giving them a better opportunity to all read the same sample in the same way, it made that reading more accurate. And that's what I certainly thought I heard both of the FDA people on there. And I could feel the emotion that they had. That surprised me. I thought they were going to be very, very pragmatic and just straight down the line. But maybe it was them joining earlier and the session overrunning. But I felt that they were a little bit more human on listening to that. But they were out there and saying, actually, we'll take histopathology, but give us the best histopathology you can give. And if that's AI associated, then thing. So I don't think that was missed. That's right. Mm -hmm. And what I heard and I tried to summarize again was Dr. Turner, I'm hearing you say that we have the ability to pivot away from our current NAS criteria and even our current fibrosis criteria and looking at something different. He says, bring us. Show me. Show me. Bring us something. And to me, that's the disturbance in the force. That's the change in the paradigm. That's the chink in the armor that will allow us to pry that open and deliver exactly what we think needs to be done. And I think Vlad then followed that up and did that. He showed them outcomes, proven outcomes with NITs that was beyond being able to do it on biopsy. That starts to open that chink even further because prove it with thing. It's outcome, outcome, outcome. And we can show you all the outcomes. I think there was only one from from his slide. There was only one part that wasn't completely proven by and the data was out yet on proving outcomes by NITs. And it's outcomes that drive patient care and it's outcomes that drive success. We're an hour in. So I want to make one observation that's been in the back of my mind and I have a closing question and then we'll, we'll go on with, with the rest of our days. It is in the nature of administrative government 
that administrative government is not about taking bold steps. It's about taking guidance, usually from legislatures, about what bold steps need to be taken and then figuring out how to make them happen. So when they say bring it, they are asking us effectively as a community to play the role of giving them guidance on where the bold steps have to go and why, so that they can figure out then how to integrate that into what they do. Every every time that Joe Turner talked last night, you could see the wheels that were going on behind and all that, I believe, although I don't know the gentleman, was about processing all the different audiences and constituencies that he deals with that weren't in that room and having to modulate what he said so that the message was going to work all the way across the line. That's about playing defense. So the, what he's asking us to do is to give him the tools so that without going on offense, he can make those changes happen. That's completely appropriate ask of a government representative. It made complete sense to me. Um, wrap up question. We all know that in 2023, whatever will have happened with coronavirus, it will have happened in such a way that we're going to be here together. And the four of us at some point were sitting in a room with the good folks at Wasatch having done an amazing job of providing audiovisual that we can use in a meeting like this. And uh, Zach, you're actually in my uh, conversation notes from yesterday about what a good job you guys have done. And if you need endorsements, talk to me. And we're going to look at each other and we're going to say, I can't believe that this has actually happened in the last 12 months. What's the this? Realistically, using your best gauge, what will be different 12 months from now as a result of the arc that got us to this weekend and what happened this weekend? Where we're going to say, wow, be bold. I'm going to be bold and I'm going to say, we are going to have a more unilateral way of using the biopsy. It's going to be AI-assisted histopathology readings, which means that the failure rate for screening will be, as Stephen's detailed in his um, presentation last night, it's going to be far less. We're going to see more cost effectivity out of that and better recruitment of the right patient. And that's what key came out for me last night. So I'm going to be bold on that AI-assisted histopathology to standardise those readings and get better results. Following up that thought, I think we'll read out a phase three trial that will link the changes in histology to MRE or NIT, which will then be the basis to A, enroll patients into trials based on that NIT and accept that NIT if it changes to good or bad to be an approvable endpoint. So I guess, you know, that's not 2023 maybe, but I think that's that's the clear path. I think that's what we mentioned at the beginning of this year. I think this is where the field moves. This is what I understand from came out of the Sophia site, Chad, and, and really the momentum on leaving biopsy as an endpoint uh, behind is there. So, Jorn, I think what I just heard you say is that the 2023 event is going to be the readout from the phase three trial that gives us the data to make the argument a lot more strongly. Yeah. And then it goes forward from there. Stephen, 12 months. Well, we didn't talk a lot about this, but I'll, I'll bring it up here. And that is, I think the NIT initiative that we launched at this meeting, where we break down stovepipes and we collaborate across sponsors to help generate the additional data that we need to support the change within the agency, will be huge. And we will have some of that data for us at the end of, by the end of the year. I agree also Ooh. with Jorn, we we're going to have some amazing readouts that are going to be transformative. Yeah, so first of all, you persuaded me that we should maybe do an episode tomorrow night or if not next week on Nail NIT because that's worth an episode itself. Yeah, I agree. And and we haven't even touched it. And you know, three minutes before you go to the slopes, after this is done, we'll talk about who to invite. I was where Louise was, which is that, um, although that's, that's a cheat because Mazen said the same thing yesterday. I like to think that where we are in a year, within a year, is that we will have flipped the script, literally, in terms of not thinking about loss, but thinking about gain. A lot of last night was about, a lot of yesterday was about, here's what we're losing by the way we're doing this. We now have 12 months to figure out how to engineer some of that into gain. Describe
describe it differently, do it differently, look at different things. And Louise's point, Jorn's point, nailing IT is a different thing. But those two practical points are two examples of how do we flip the script on yeah. this and right. go for go from not losing to winning. Uh, I think the mindset's there to do that. I think the positive energy last night was amazing, in fact, through the whole weekend. And um, my hat's off to you and Michael and Rohit and Plod. What did this has really been powerful stuff. So. With that, let's let everybody go back to their lives for the day. And we will be back recording tomorrow evening, although I'm not sure what that's going to look like yet. But um, stay tuned. We'll let everybody know. Stephen, thank you. And you and Louise, thank you for staying up till whatever hour in the morning it was that you catch the little fireside chat. And Euron, thanks for being available as often and in all the ways that you are. Zach and Wasatch, you guys have been fantastic. And um, we will uh, close with that. And everybody stay safe and surf on. Uh, we'll see you on podcast, okay? Thank bye, you, guys. Bye-bye now. you enjoyed this recording, please join us Wednesday, January 12th for a wrap-up coverage of NASHTAG 2022. If you would like to attend the live recording at 1.30 Eastern Standard Time on Monday, January 10th, please send a request to surf live at surfingnash.com and we will send you an invitation and link. Until then, stay safe and surf on.